Lord, I thank you for another opportunity to be in this place this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word um, and what we can learn from it. Lord, you are so good. You're so good to us, Lord. And we need to know more about you. I pray you'd put a desire in our heart to seek and to know you all of our days. Lord, I pray right now that you would get everything out of this place that could hinder us from learning. And we pray, Lord, I'd ask your Holy Spirit to do a mighty work in this place this morning. We need your Spirit to understand your Word. Lord, help us to understand your truth this morning. Lord, and again, I said it to the congregation, uh, we just think of Mike Husey. We're going to miss him. We want to celebrate that he is free at last. Lord, we want to pray for his loved ones left behind, um, that you would just help them through this difficult time. As always, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So I'm going to ask you for a little bit of uh, participation this morning for a little while. Um, What I want to ask is uh, who's got a life verse? Tell me a, a, a verse that really means something to you that uh, you, know, you get up in the morning and you grab hold of or something like that. Do, do anybody have a verse or a passage they want to uh, uh, just holler out? Say it again. Tell us what it is. Praise the Lord. You know, he has made us a new creation. Wonderful. Anybody else? Yes, sir, Mr. Ken. Say it, for, recite it for us. Amen. That is a wonderful one, the promise uh, of the, uh, uh, the new heaven and the new earth and where we will live with no more pain and suffering. And uh, Wonderful. Anybody else? A couple more you want to throw them out? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Wonderful. Another wonderful truth. Yes, but Deb. Amen. Wonderful. And what these, what these are is God's truths, God's promises to us that we can grab hold of and uh, um, carry us, help us carry us through life. God is so good. I'm going to share, I'm going to share two, ver- or two passages with you that uh, um, uh, they're some of my favorite. Tomorrow I might have another favorite, but today these are my two favorites. And uh, um, the one's from the Old Testament. Um, it is... Uh, from Isaiah, and I'm going to read that for you. It's not a verse, it's a short passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven." Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. What I love about that passage is it gives us a picture of who God is. It gives us a picture of what worship should look like and the worth of man, who man really is in comparison to God. Um, 
The Old Testament provides for us so often a picture of a holy, majestic, fearsome, all-powerful God who has no equal. A God who commands respect and is too awesome for any to stand in His presence. That's what we see. A picture of the awesome God from Isaiah. It gives us an idea of what true worship should look like. The angels that are around the, uh, around the throne, around God, they cover their faces with one set of wings. Why? Because they cannot look upon the glory of the Lord. They cover their feet with another set of wings. Why? Because they are not worthy for God to look upon them. Um, it gives us an idea of what worship is and they continually crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Um, shows us what uh, 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 worship looks like. Isaiah in humility. Why in humility? Because he knows when he's before the, mighty pre- the presence of the mighty Lord God that he is nothing. He is unworthy. He falls on his face in humility. Um, he sees himself as he truly is, unclean, unworthy uh, of, the, uh, of the Lord. And in fear and devotion, he falls down and answers the call in obedience. Yes, Lord, send me. I will go. Um, I just like this passage, and it's not necessarily a truth that I can hold on to, but it is a picture of the God that has given us those truths that we can hold on, those promises that we hold on to. I want to, this really has nothing to do with what I'm preaching this morning um, or what I'm talking about, except it's the same God. And that's what a picture I want you to get in here. So often people see, uh, um, when they see this picture of God, um, they feel like from the Old Testament, He is a cold, demanding God. Um, that's not a cold, demanding God. This is a picture of sinless perfection, of unparalleled holiness, the awesome, mighty power of the One who created all things. Um, um, and you know, one of the reasons I like this, because that is the same God that we see in the New Testament. The One that loved His children, that's us Loved mankind enough that he was willing to sacrifice his son uh, to give us a better life. Um, What an awesome God he is. So it's the first passage. The next one is really a verse, one of my favorite verses, and that's the one we're going to camp on for a little while this morning and uh, talk about. uh, uh, So the second passage is from the New Testament. And again, I want you to keep in mind that picture of God that glorious, mighty, awesome, powerful being is the same one we see that we read about in the New Testament who was full of grace and love and mercy and kindness and gentleness. Still powerful, but oh, is He so good to us. So the, uh, uh, next, the, the verse in the New Testament, it's Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. That's a wonderful promise that I've held on to for a lot, uh, a lot of my life, but I'll be honest with you, I didn't understand what it meant. Still a promise, and, and uh, I, I knew a little bit of it, but uh, God is revealing more and more to me what it means. And um, So uh, I ask you, uh, we know Matthew wrote these words because it's in the book of Matthew. Can anybody tell me who spoke these words? Jesus. It's always the good answer, right? Always the right answer. Uh, of course, Jesus spoke these words, and it's, uh, um, it is a portion of the greatest sermon ever. We, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was sharing with his followers on a hillside in the region of Galilee. 
Um, this is not a command. We see a bunch of commands in the Bible, the Ten Commandments for one. There's laws that we must live by. Well, laws that in the Old Testament they were called to, to live by, the commandments. I want to tell you, first off, this is not a commandment. Um, but this is a strong suggestion uh, from Jesus, and that suggestion, if we obey it or follow it, comes with a reward attached. And I just have to tell you, if Jesus suggested it, I want to do it. I want to learn more about it. I want to pay attention to it, and I want to understand what it means. So I'm going to read it again for you, and I'm going to read this over. You're going to hear this verse over and over uh, through, throughout the next uh, three and a half hours or however long this lasts. But uh, um, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I, I don't know about you, but when I first hear that, I start, I, the question that comes up is, well, what is the kingdom of God? Um, and I think we need to uh, understand what a, ki- what a kingdom is. So I'm going to try to help us. I'm going to share some words, but I'm going to trust the Lord uh, and that through the Holy Spirit is going to teach us, help us understand what it is today. But uh, um, so um, many believe that when you, you hear about the kingdom of God in this passage that it, it, it is referring to the end times when Jesus defeats his enemies. And that's what I, uh, the verse Ken was reading, uh, recited for us. When Jesus defeats his enemies with the word, he reigns supreme first on this earth and then in the new heaven and earth. That is, and, and I've got these three F words here together. That doesn't sound good, does it? These are good words. That is the final forcible fulfillment of the kingdom of God. But I don't believe that this is what Jesus is telling us to seek in this verse right now. Um, So uh, a kingdom is all that is encompassed under the power and authority of a ruler. I'm going to say that again for you. A kingdom is all that is encompassed under the power and authority of a ruler. I think by looking at the, uh, uh, the Roman Empire, we might be able to get a better idea, maybe get an understanding of what a kingdom is. Um, the Roman Empire grew to unmatched proportions uh, through, uh, through military victories, assassinations, missed pages... There we go. Occupations, uh, and at its height, it encompassed over 3 million square miles, governed over 70 million people, or approximately 21% of the world's population. Each time a city was sacked and occupied, a leader or governor was set in place. He was vested with power and authority from the current emperor, and the empire or kingdom of the emperor was extended. I share this with you because the Roman Empire played a crucial role in the times of Jesus, was a prominent kingdom throughout the history of the nation of Israel, and I believe it gives us a vivid picture of what a kingdom is. Here's another word, more modern day word, might help us to understand it's jurisdiction. Um, and forgive me for this. Right? How many of us grew how many of you grew up with the Dukes of Hazard? Yeah, that's a godly show. <laughs> My children got to grow up with that as well because I got all the DVD sets there, right? So when I thought about jurisdiction, I couldn't help but think of Roscoe and Boss Hogg. Um, Boss Hogg's kingdom or jurisdiction was Hazard County. And if you remember, if Roscoe took one step over the Chickasaw County line, he was out of his jurisdiction. The power and authority, and I want to keep saying that word too. I want you to hear that, the power and authority vested. 
the power and authority vested in him, uh, uh, power and authority vested in Roscoe by the boss did not extend past that line. Um, He was out of his jurisdiction. I'm going to say it again. Please forgive me for dumbing down God's word with the Dukes of Hazzard. I won't do it anymore today, I promise. Um, So the kingdom of God is all that is encompassed under the power and authority of God. Or it is God's jurisdiction. Uh, And I know you say, well, um, doesn't God have jurisdiction over everything? Well, yes. Ultimately, he has power and authority over all things, but he does not forcibly exercise that yet. So if we back up to the uh, beginning of, uh, of Matthew in chapter 1, uh, Matthew records the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist be- uh, came to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, John came bringing a message of repentance, and uh, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what John, the message he was bringing. The kingdom of God is at hand. So the people of Israel at the time were looking for a physical king uh, to free them from the bondage of Rome. One who would bring peace and prosperity, rest and security, and one who would restore the former glory of the kingdom of Israel. Well, God had something far better, far bigger in mind. I think we can look at the, uh, the history of God's kingdom here a little bit. I think to understand, when we must go all the way back to Adam and Eve. God made the first two humans, Adam and Eve, to be king and queen of His wonderful creation, vesting them with His power and authority. Genesis 1.28 records God giving man domain over all living things on the earth. They were to rule and reign and keep, on, uh, keep order under the power and authority of God. Instead, they gave their authority to the serpent, which resulted in the world that is revolting against mankind and the kingdom of God becoming the kingdom of the world, ruled by spiritual forces of darkness. Things were no longer what they they were meant to be. The authority that God had given to man, the dominion, the kingship, was handed over to the serpent. And what was left was the kingdom of God became the kingdom of this world. And that kingdom was under the power and the authority of the enemy of God and the enemy of everything that is good. In declaring that the kingdom of God was at hand, John was preparing the way for the dominion that God had given to the first king and queen to be restored once again to a man. And that man is the God-man, Jesus. Yes, Jesus was sent to be king, not merely the king of the Jews, but king of creation. Uh, the proof of the kingship or dominion of Jesus was recorded for us in the pages of the, uh, uh, the gift. And I hope we see the Bible as a gift. Uh, it is a gift from God to us to help us understand who He is, who we should be, how this life should work. It's a wonderful gift. Um, but uh, we see the proof of Jesus' dominion or kingship uh, throughout the pages of the Bible. He turned water into wine. He healed the sick and the lame and the diseased. He quieted the wind. He calmed the raging sea with the word. He walked on water. He told the demons to shut up. Sorry, children, I know I'm not allowed to use that word. He told the demons to shut up and get out, and they listened. He brought the dead back to life, he, uh, exercising his authority over death and all of this world. And when those around him thought that all was lost, in the midst of the horrible celebration from the enemy, as his lifeblood was poured out on the hill called Calvary and he was wrapped in burial cloth, stuck in a hole in the ground, sealed with a stone, 
he triumphantly stood up, breathed again, conquering sin in the grave and ultimately crushed the head of the serpent, the unworthy one to whom the kingship was lost to, sealing his authority, dominion, and kingship over all. The powerful word from Handel's Messiah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever were borrowed uh, from the prophetic pages of Isaiah, declaring that the kingdom, power, and authority of God would return to this doomed world and the government would be upon the mighty shoulders of none other than the Son of God, Jesus, the redeeming King. And I have to throw this in. I want some participation. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. And I want you to remind you again, amen doesn't mean, Andy, you're doing well. Amen means that's the truth, brother, and I agree with it. So, so you can amen anytime you'd like. So, again, the nation of Israel was looking for a physical king to free them from their bondage of Rome, one who would bring peace and prosperity, rest and security for their lifetime. God provided a heavenly king who would restore what man had lost bring the power and authority, the kingdom of God, back to earth. Jesus, the holy Son of God, is that king. I'm going to read a verse again. Thank you. I heard another amen. I like that. Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We talked about what the kingdom is. What is righteousness? Righteousness is behavior. I think this microphone is rubbing on my scratchy face and making noises. That's better. Um, Righteousness is behavior that is morally correct based on a standard. And the standard for morally correct behavior is always God's character. The word righteous can be traced back to the Greek word for judge. God is always the judge or standard for right and wrong. He is the true standard for righteousness. If you back up a chapter back to chapter 5, and I would encourage you to do that today. You might as well just read all through Matthew. Give you something to do today. If you back up and read the entire account of the Sermon on the Mount, you will see great examples of morally correct, correct behaviors, attitudes, uh, and attitudes. Um, what are they? They're humility, contentment, a longing for righteousness, mercy, patience, longings and actions that bring peace, integrity, commitment, love for your neighbor, love for your enemy, that one doesn't sound as good, does it? We can love our, love our neighbors, but love your enemies. Encouragement, honesty, generosity, love and devotion for God. Trust, faith. Galatians 5.22 lists more for us. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you study the words of God, if you learn His character, you will know the standard of right and wrong, and you will know what righteousness looks like. You understand what the kingdom of God is a little better? You understand what righteousness is? So, what's it mean to seek? Uh, seek is a verb. It's an action word. It means to search, to pursue, to strive after. This same word is used in Luke 19.10 when Jesus shared His mission with His followers. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That word again, to seek. Um, it is used in Luke 15.8 where we read about the parable of the lost coin. Or what woman who has ten silver coin and loses one of them does not light a lamp, sweep her house, and search carefully until she finds it. This story gives you a picture of a woman turning her house upside down to find something that she cannot live without. 
Does that remind you of the last time you lost your keys? Just wondering. Um, Jesus says, seek first. He is telling you to make it a priority, to pursue, to strive after, to make it the mission of your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I used to believe that this verse was encouraging us just to practice attitudes and behaviors that pleased and honored the Lord. That is not wrong, uh, but it is incomplete. Um, So are we just to, to seek Jesus? Yes, that's part of it too, but it's more than that. We need to understand how the kingdom applies to us. I'm going to paraphrase the words of one smarter than I. That's our resident theologian, Frank. Thank you. Um, The power and authority of God the Father has shown up in Jesus, and He has extended it to the church. I'm going to read that to you again. The power and authority of God the Father has shown up in Jesus, And He has extended it to the church. I pray today that you would understand what that means for you. And you got to start by knowing this. When the words of the Bible speak of the church, it is not referring to a building or a structure, but a body. The church is you and me and every other blessed individual in this world who has accepted the unspeakable gift from God. Uh, The Father, we saw that picture of in the, the Old Testament. Uh, if we have accepted that unspeakable gift from God the Father, we have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That might not mean much unless you understand that every one of us was born into the kingdom of darkness, Satan's domain. That's what we were born into. When Adam and Eve handed the kingdom of God over to the serpent, this became the kingdom of the world. It's a dark, uh, dark domain. Sin, sorrow, hatred, rebellion, perversion, death and destruction rule in the kingdom of the world. Ephesians 6.12 warns us that in this kingdom, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world, darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are of the kingdom of this that is ruled by the powers of darkness, that is ruled by the enemy of God, by the murdering, lying thief whose name I don't even want to mention again. Uh, but each one of us have suffered through the pains that are a result of life in this kingdom. In this world, there was little hope for mankind. But friends, if you have accepted the gift from God the Father through Jesus Christ, the power and authority of God the Father has been extended to you, the church. We have been released from the bondage of the dark kingdom of this fallen world. No longer under the dominion of the powers and rulers of darkness, we have been brought into the kingdom of God under the sovereign, righteous rule of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So when Jesus tells us to seek uh, the kingdom of God, He is telling you to pursue, to chase after, to know to make it a priority, to understand the power and authority of God in your life, to throw off the chains of death and hell, to step out of the bondage of this world and joyfully submit the kingship of Jesus in your life. I'm going to say that again because I didn't say it quite right. And joyfully submit to the kingship of Jesus in your life. You know what He's telling you to do? Let Jesus reign in your life. Let Him be your King. I sincerely hope you understand what this means to you. 
I've been long intrigued uh, by John 10.10. Jesus said, I have come to bring abundant life. Um, uh, One of the the, uh, uh, versions of the Bible I had said, I have come to bring life to the fool. I've used this joke before. I thought, woohoo, I'm a fool. He's come to bring me life, right? (laughs) Wrong fool. He's come to bring abundant life or he's come to bring the fullness of life. I am now understanding so much better what that means. Because of Jesus, we can have a taste of heaven on earth. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Again, that, that passage, that promise is uh, uh, being directed toward the church. Uh, those who have been uh, uh, redeemed, accepted that gift. That verse does not say that you will be when you die and transferred to heaven. It says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. It's past tense. It's done. How is that possible? It is possible because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He has invited us into it. Seek first the kingdom. How do we seek, the king- uh, how do we seek righteousness? I think... Uh, we have to make sure we understand in this, in this passage what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying, uh, seek the kingdom and you will get the righteousness that's involved in that kingdom. That's a part of that kingdom. So if you seek righteousness alone, you will not find it. I find, found myself, I don't like the way I'm acting, so I'm trying to change my actions, change my attitudes. That's where my focus is. I never get where I want to be. Because my focus is wrong. I need to focus on the kingdom of heaven. I need to focus on making Jesus reign in my life. And that's where the righteousness uh, comes in. If you seek the kingdoms, God's rule in your life, righteousness follows. Today, when you go home, I'm going to ask you again to read chapters 5 through 7 in Matthew and learn about righteousness. Uh, I want to suggest to you that righteousness is not what we should strive for. Uh, but evidence of what can be when we seek the kingdom of God and learn to let Jesus reign in our life. Another one more phrase in this verse that uh, we haven't covered yet. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? So I told you uh, a few minutes ago that uh, this, this verse is not necessarily a command, uh, but a strong suggestion with a reward attached. Uh, what is the reward? The reward is, and all these things will be added unto you. To keep this verse in context, I want to read more from Matthew 6, 24-34. Starting in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. <clears throat> Excuse me. I got a subheading in my, in my uh, uh, Bible here before, right before uh, verse 25, and what that subheading is, is the cure for anxiety. Keep that in mind, the cure for anxiety as we continue reading on. Verse 25 says, For this reason... I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow 
nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being, excuse me, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will He not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I want to make sure you understand this is not the prosperity gospel. Jesus is not teaching you that if you seek the kingdom, you will have everything that you want. He is teaching that if you seek the kingdom, you will see that God already has and will continue to supply everything that you need. It's as if... I never want to add to Jesus' words. I never want to change His command or, or, or change the meaning of anything. But um, from my interpretation, it's just that Jesus is saying, I can see Him sitting down in front of His people with kind of a smirk on His face, smiling, saying, do you not know what God has done for you already? He has brought you under His power, under His authority. He has invited you into the kingdom, released you from the powers of darkness. Is he not able to take care of the lesser things as well? What is food? What is clothing? What are your daily worries compared to all that he is and all that he has done for you already? I want to end with a quote from the theologian John Darby. Probably never heard of him. I never did either until I was studying this week. Singly aim at this, that God reigning in your heart may fill it with the righteousness above described. And indeed, whosoever seeks this first will soon come to seek this only. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So, uh, we get the opportunity, the privilege this morning to share in communion. And it's funny, uh, every once in a while on, on our first, on our communion Sunday, I think, man, that tied into the message so well. It's wonderful. How'd that happen? Well, that happens. That is the story of the Bible. Everything, the, the whole story of the Bible, uh, deals with communion. Why? It's because what, what God the Father, that awesome, mighty, powerful being, um, who's got supreme rule over all things, it's because He loved us enough. Uh, to want a better way for us. And it's because of Jesus, the Holy Son of God was willing to come to earth, to live, to die for us. And now I hope we see a different perspective. He was willing to come back and fight and capture that kingdom, capture the kingdom of God back, put it in its right, under the rightful power and authority, and then invite us to be a wonderful part of that. So this morning we get to, uh, 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 like I said, share in communion. You, you know how we do this. Uh, uh, you come up, get the elements, go back to your seat, spend some time praying, spend some time thanking the Lord. We cannot take communion 
I'm going to say that again. We cannot take communion without spending time thanking the Lord, without a grateful heart. And if you can't understand right now why you should have a grateful heart toward the Lord, you need to sit down and think a little bit about it. Pray on it. And if you want to talk to somebody else, come talk to somebody else. But, but uh, we'll share in communion this morning with a grateful heart, with thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going on that. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your promises. Uh, so I, I love to hear the verses that uh, people were excited about, the promises that they hold on to. Lord, Your promises are different from others. You always keep them. You always fulfill them. What a wonderful God You are. I thank You that You are so mighty and powerful and holy. Thank You that You are merciful and kind and that You love us and that You have invited us into Your kingdom. That is a wonderful truth. Lord, I pray that You would help us to apply what You've taught us today to our life. Help us to understand what it means to seek the kingdom. And may we make it a mission of our life to put Jesus on the throne of our life. Change us today. And Lord, may You be pleased with the worship that continues in this place. May we celebrate communion together with a thankful heart. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.